Hi, I'm Asha Tomlinson. And I'm David Common. And we're hosts of CBC Marketplace. We're award-winning investigative journalists that want to help you avoid clever scams, unsafe products, and sketchy services. Our TV show has been Canada's top investigative consumer watchdog for more than 50 years. But this is our first podcast. CBC Marketplace podcast is available now on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. The long-standing senator and what she stood for. A California congressman remembers Dianne Feinstein, who broke her deals and broke down barriers over her decades-long political career. Driven to tears, a BBC journalist finds herself orchestrating a frantic mission to track down a refrigerated truck in France and rescue the six women trapped inside. Rhythmic resilience, Leanne Bidasmase Simpson covers a classic anthem by Willie Dunn and tells us that over half a century since it was initially released, it still holds a powerful message. Sea change. The Biden administration abandons its pledge to block new drilling in the Gulf of Mexico, and environmentalists are furious about the about face. Depth charge. We'll hear from the intern who got a jolt when she was operating the cameras on a deep-sea research vessel and spotted a rare Dumbo octopus. And like that octopus, we're all ears. And the grass is always browner on the other side. Neighbors everywhere turn off their sprinklers in a desperate bid to win the first ever World's Ugliest Lawn Contest. As it happens, the Friday edition, radio that's hoping to enter, wither permitting. Amid the ongoing quarreling and finger-pointing in Washington today, there was a pause as politicians from both sides of the aisle paid tribute to Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. She died last night in D.C. She was 90 years old. Over her decades-long career in politics, she broke gender barriers as the mayor of San Francisco and when she was elected to the U.S. Senate for California in 1992. She went on to become the longest-serving female senator in history. Although recently there were growing concerns that she had served perhaps too long, some people were calling for her to resign due to questions about her health. John Garamendi is a Democratic congressman from California. We reached him in D.C. Representative Garamendi, it was clearly an emotional day for many people as Senator Feinstein was eulogized in Congress. What made you tear up? Indeed, it was wake up in the morning and the first thing on your phone is that Senator Feinstein has passed, and you go, but she was just on the floor of the Senate yesterday. Mm. Voting. Mm. You know, just all of the history for Patty and I, 40-some years that we've known Senator Feinstein in a very, very personal way. Families working with her kids and her family growing up, as ours were, and, you know, just all of those years. And this extraordinary woman uh, who really set the pace for so much of the good uh, that we've been able to accomplish as a country, as a state, that's her legacy. So, yeah, it was a tough morning. And now as we go through the day, the memories keep coming back. You sit down and have a long cup of coffee and, and talk about it. And 
coffee mug in, in oh. my hand and see the artwork that she had etched into that coffee cup. It was always a bouquet of flowers. So on top of everything she accomplished, all of those firsts, she also had time to make mugs? She was an artist yeah. in her own way, and her specialty were uh, flowers, bouquets. During the long hours of debate uh, on the Senate or in the City Hall of San Francisco, she would have her pen out and uh, she would be doing artwork. I've been the recipient of mugs in which she would have that to put onto a mug and actually a couple of, uh, of her work. But it was I always looked at that and I always remembered that this was a woman that always was upbeat, like a bouquet, always looking to uh, bring something better to pass. When Harvey Milk and San Francisco's mayor were shot and killed in the 1970s, she heard those gunshots. She had been planning to quit politics until that moment. So it was a pivotal moment for her and one that informed her politics going forward. How did it affect her gun control efforts in Congress? Uh, I, there is no doubt that the, the murder of George Moscone and Harvey Milk really cemented in her mind the necessity for gun control legislation. Uh, and she carried that. Uh, it was just shortly after that that we had a uh, shooting in my district in Stockton, California. It was really the first assault weapons shooting at a school, and I think five kids were shot or killed and another dozen or more wounded. Uh, I then introduced an assault weapons ban, and we eventually got that through the California legislature. She began the transition from mayor to run for governor and then the U.S. Senate. All along that way, she was involved in supporting and um, uh, work, well, really watching and working closely with what we were doing with this assault weapons ban. When she got to Congress, she immediately took that issue up and, and made it the national law. Unfortunately, for many reasons political, she was only able to make it for 10 years, not permanent. But she never gave up, and she never backed away from gun safety, gun control. Always, right up uh, until this year, including all of this year, she was one of the principal authors, like the principal authors of a renewal of the assault weapons ban. And had she been healthy this year, I believe we may very well have had that bill and law reinstituted. She was not to be denied. Do you think that's why she kept going? You know, she was she was ill. Her health was on the decline for for some time. You know, folks were saying she should she should step aside. Is that one reason why she kept going? Well, certainly the the, the gun issue is one that that she wanted to get done. But her list, her to do list, was long and extraordinarily important. Uh, there were issues of uh, the appointments. To the, to the courts, as well as to other appointments, uh, her position on the Judiciary Committee and so forth, all of those. This is her life's work, and she was not about to quit. In this hyper-politicized climate, polarized climate, what do you hope politicians take away from the senator's legacy and her accomplishments? Well, all of us would do well to observe what Senator Feinstein was able to accomplish during her 30 years very, very complex, very controversial issues. California water, you cannot find a more difficult, complex, controversial issue. I mean, it is a blood sport 
California water. But she had a clear goal, and that was to preserve the environment and make as much water available as possible. And so with that goal in mind, she accepted compromises that made some people unhappy, or maybe maybe made both sides of the debate unhappy, but pushed the issue forward, knowing that there would be tomorrow and a chance to come back to the issue and maybe make it better, modify it, change it, uh, and but always with the goal in mind. And so for all of us, it's a lesson. It's it's This is a process in which the objective, the goal, is what we strive for. But along the way, we must recognize that compromise is the only way that you're going to move it forward. When did you last speak with her? I spoke to her two months ago. Since she came back in September, uh, I had not had a chance to talk to her, but Mm -hmm. uh, before we broke, I did have a chance. So I was in late summer. We sat down, and uh, she got out that coffee cup. I had that flower coffee cup in my hand, and she had her dainty little teacup, and (laughs) we talked. We talked about her husband, who had recently died. And then, you know, it was most of the conversation, and then uh, about, okay, now what are we going to do about uh, these Republicans that are going to try to strip women of their, uh, their, their, their rights to control their own body? And so we talked about that. It was on her mind that the women's issues, which she came to power in in the 1990s, all of those issues, reproductive rights and uh, political and uh, equal opportunities for everything, that was her fight back in the 90s. Representative Garamendi, thank you for sharing your time and your memories. Thank you for uh, making it possible for all of us to uh, focus on an extraordinary woman. Thank you. California Democratic Representative John Garamendi in D.C. What began as an ordinary day for Hui Liu turned into one of the most tense and dramatic days of her career. The BBC journalist was at work when she received a message from an unknown sender asking for help. The message explained there were people trying to cross the border from France to the UK in a refrigerated van. Then a call came in to Ms. Liu's phone, the first of many urgent calls she would get over the next several hours. We reached Hui Liu in London, England. As you know, journalists get tips all the time, story ideas, but this was something very different. So when that phone call rings, what did the person on the other end say to you? Yeah, as you said, the so strange to receive uh, yeah. that type of uh, message. And then uh, the man called me. I don't, I don't know who he was and he didn't want to be identified who he was. He told me that um, actually uh, he knew that there was a group of six young women hiding in a lorry but he didn't know where they were at the moment and where the lorry was heading to and they also didn't have uh, the registration number of the lorry so basically he didn't know nothing he just knew that they uh, they were in trouble at that time that is not a lot of information to go on what's going through your mind at that point you know did you did you think it was it could be a fake call 
Yeah, at the very beginning, you know, because uh, as a journalist who always need to check things before we process, yeah, the very flash thinking in my mind was, oh, well, is it really true that they there's some people in real danger or not? But then uh, with my instinct and by the way I heard the voice from the men, I, I thought, okay, this is quite an urgent thing. You trusted your gut. But as, as we said, there's no information to go on. So how do you go about trying to piece everything together and get these people help? Mm. Uh, my first uh, thought was, uh, could I do something? Could I help them or not? Or should I find some other support from any other ways to, to do uh, better? So I asked the man whether he can put me to get in touch directly with those in danger. At the very beginning, I think maybe they were a little bit um, frightened because they obviously you can imagine that they wanted to keep they themselves uh, in hiding. But then I told them that, okay, I need to talk with them and not I need to get in touch with them. And then after a few minutes, yeah, I quickly could get in touch with one of the girls inside the lorry. When you start talking to this woman, yes. what did she say? I thought they were in distress uh, uh, situation, so they just answer me briefly one or two words at each time. Also, I received um, two clips that they sent from inside of the lorry. And in one clip, I heard a voice, a female voice, said that uh, I can't take a breath or something like that. Uh, they could share their loca- location with me. So from there, I tried to find out, to locate where they were in France. And from that point, I asked my colleague from BBC uh, Paris Bureau to find down the phone number of the police stations nearest mm-hmm. to the lorry. To the to the the pin that they dropped or the location that they yes. sent you, yes. and how quickly were police able to get there? Not very quickly, mm. because uh, you know when I got the um, share location from the girl inside the lorry, uh, I tried to convey the screen grab of the location to the police uh, every few minutes, but you know it's about few minutes behind the real time. After for a while, I got more information, the right number of the lorry, the phone number of uh, the girl, kind of. Mm-hmm. And with all of those information, the police finally were able to locate where the lorry was. And it took about roughly about two hours. Two hours from that message that you got. It's it's yes. so remarkable on so many levels. Way uh, Just to go back in time a little bit, how did they even mm. know how to reach you? Where did they get your number? Mm. Uh, the man who called me, I think, I guess, he knew me because uh, four years ago, I covered a lot uh, on the um, 39 deaths on the XX uh, lorries. In uh, 2019. In, London, uh, in, yeah. Yeah, in 2019, yes. Yeah. I uh, I think from that point, a lot of people knew that mm-hmm. um, I work on the this issue. Many people, I mean, I certainly remember that story as it as it broke and when that lorry was found and, and the horrors inside was that in your mind over those two hours which seemed fast to me now but i wonder if it felt like just never ending to you knowing how the 2019 situation ended 
at the very beginning, I was so frightened. I was, you know, the, my feeling, I still remember how I felt that time. When I talked with the men on the, uh, on the voice call, I was, I, I thought maybe I wanted to break to tear because I was so frightened. But then it seemed to me that they tried to reach me because they didn't know who, where else to turn to. I think, okay, I should do this. I, I must do it. Covering the story in 2019, how much attention it got, how many people reached out to you. Why do you think this keeps happening? Um, that's the question that, that I also want to ask people. Why after such a, such a tragic, uh, tragic uh, story, they still wanted to risk their life to get into the lorries like this? I also want to know. But, you know. If we are not in their situation, we can't answer for them. What will happen to these women now? Um, yesterday, the thing, the updates from the police, the French police to us, was they uh, released the four Vietnamese women on the, on the condition that the, uh, these four women need to leave the country within 30 days. And they allowed the two Iraqi women to stay and apply for the asylum-seeking status. Do you think your phone will ring again with a story like this? I wish not. I don't know. I actually don't know. But I wish, I really wish that I would never receive any call for help like this in my life anymore. Wei, thank you so much. You're very welcome. Wei Liu is a journalist with the BBC. We reached her in London, England. I pity the country. I pity the state. And the mind of the man. This is the late, great Willie Dunn with his anti-colonialism anthem, I Pity the Country. In 1968, the Mi'kmaq Scottish folk singer and activist released what some say is Canada's first music video for a song called The Ballad of Crowfoot. It used archival footage to tell the story of stolen land and settler betrayals. Now, flash forward 54 years. This year, ahead of the National Day for Truth and Reconciliation tomorrow, Leanne Bidasmose-Simpson has released a new music video for her cover of I Pity the Country. And like Willie Dunn's video, it uses archival footage to tell the story of joy and resistance in the face of violent colonialism. It was produced by Indigenous co-directors Lisa Jackson and Connor McNally. We reached Indigenous writer and artist Leanne Bidasmose-Simpson in Peterborough, Ontario. Leanne, when did you first encounter those words and that song? I first heard this song in 2018 as as a musician because I was looking for a song to cover, um, to play at the Native North American gathering. Mm-hmm. 
um, that took place in Ottawa, the, the National Centre for the Arts. Many, many, many years after it, it first came out. And, I, you know, I think a lot of people may be even hearing it for the first time right now. So in that moment, what did those words say to you? How did they hit you? Well, on one hand, it's this folk song from, you know, a particular era um, before I was before I was like listening to music actively. Um, but it resonated with me. Um, as an Indigenous person, it resonated with the present moment. And I felt like the lyrics really stood the test of time. And it was easy for me to be able to step up to the mic and say Willie's words with, with my full heart. Yeah. You, you made a change to the lyrics. Just tell our listeners what you changed and why you wanted to do that in this moment. I changed one line. I changed, they pull and they paw me. And I changed that line to they rape and they beat me. And I wanted, I changed that line really um, naturally when I was rehearsing um, the song because I think I wanted it to resonate with, with my own life as an Indigenous woman living in Canada. And we were sort of in the midst of um, a, a national discussion about the crisis of missing and murdered Indigenous women, girls, and two-spirit people. And so I felt like that sh- that that Willie would be okay with that that one change um, because gender violence has been such a, a part of the the history of colonialism in in Canada in the present day. It's one thing to hear the words; it's another to sing them when they mean so much to you, what is it like to, to say them, to sing them? It's time my band and I have performed this song in audiences across Canada. It's, um, it's a powerful moment. It's a powerful moment, I think, for me to connect with audiences in that way. Um, the music is very uh, moving and, and the lyrics land in a different way depending on what's sort of going on at, at the time. And in the past few years, there have been lots and lots of events and um, pieces of Indigenous resistance that I think have resonated in, in that moment for the audience and for, for me as well. The video is also powerful, Leanne. There's also a shift in it and and there are moments of joy this is radio, of course. So can you describe it for our listeners? So the video is made um, with a, lo- a lot of archival footage mm-hmm. from the NFB and from CBC and then kind of me- remixed with some contemporary footage as well um, because Billy- Willie was also a filmmaker and he debuted his first film in 1968, um, the Battle of Crowfoot and with the NFB. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to have kind of a homage to his filmmaking at that time, but we also wanted to have these these images from this this archive of documentary film at the NFB that Indigenous people have been a part of. Um, that's ex- resting this indigenous joy. So you see children in Fort Good Hope running, you see some laughing, you see um, some, some, a lot of community and a lot of families um, having good times out on the mm-hmm. land, um, fishing and hunting. And, and that's, um, that makes me really happy. Yeah, it, it is. Uh, it's making me smile thinking about it after just watching it uh, as well. And the power of images. Willie Dunn uh, certainly knew how powerful images could be. He talked about that. And you hear from him directly, not, not only just singing, 
but at the end uh, of this of this video. So we want to play our, you and our listeners part of that as well. The only thing stronger than actual uh, film, you know, as far as get things across, is actual uh, direct action. You know, putting your body in a position where people have to react against it. So film is a is a strong thing. I don't think it's the end all. I think it's a beginning. How do those words resonate with you? Um, those words, those words resonate with me today, and they make me feel very proud of all the times that Indigenous people have have taken to the streets. Um, it makes me re remember Idle No More. Mm. It makes me remember, um, you know, even this week, people out on the streets protecting trans rights and and pushing back against um, against homophobia and transphobia. And and I think that that that's uh, a very good thing to be reminded of in this moment. You've put your own body on the line. You've put yourself out there in more ways sure. than one. Why is it important for you to, to do that in that way, to be on the front lines of Indigenous activism as well as Indigenous joy and creativity? Because I think that we're in a position right now where we have to defend the land, we have to defend the climate, we have to defend um, our ability to live as Indigenous peoples in our homelands. And so for me, that kind of direct action comes from a place of, of absolute love of the land, of culture, of family and of community. If we go back to that first line of the song, I pity the country, I pity the state and the mind of a man who thrives on hate. Do you believe Canada and its leaders still thrive on hate? Well, there's certainly that there's segments of Canadian society that do, and there's mm -hmm. a lot of other um, non-Indigenous peoples and communities that um, that I interact with that are absolutely pushing back against against that, and so. I think that there is truth in that. There is truth in that in this moment. And there is also um, lots and lots of other people organizing in, in other ways to make a different future. Leanne, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you so much. Take care. Bye-bye. We reached Leanne Bidasmose Simpson in Peterborough, Ontario. Tomorrow there will be a National Day for Truth and Reconciliation event in Ottawa. And you can hear that live here on CBC Radio with host Phelan Johnson. It starts at 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Usually when this show reports on nail-biting five to four decisions, they are stories about the Supreme Court, our own or the perennial bastion of controversy that is SCOTUS. Rarely, if ever, do we bring you up to speed on the machinations of Aurelia, Ontario's city council. But one vote this week caught our attention, partly because it was a nail-biter and partly because it was over a question that's been at the center of debate in municipalities all across the country. What services should be made available to the residents of encampments? Janet Lynn Durnford is a city councillor in Aurelia, and that's where we reached her. Janet Lynn, you brought forward this motion at city council this week, this measure. What specific services are you hoping to provide? So councillor Jay Follis and I brought this forward, and we are hoping to place uh, porta-potties, four sets of porta-potties on publicly owned land that is currently um, home to some encampment sites. 
and that would be with uh, daily cleaning and also to uh, provide regular garbage pickup to those sites. It passed with a very narrow margin, just five votes to four. So what signal did that send to you? Um, I think, um, you know, I can't speak for the councillors who voted against it. Um, uh, There were some public comments that were made in opposition to the idea. I also know that uh, there are some who feel that it is a stopgap measure, and it is indeed a stopgap measure. And for that reason, we are looking at medium and uh, long-term solutions to the challenge as well. How many people are out there in the encampment? How many people are living there? That's a great question. Uh, We have some wonderful outreach workers who are attempting to kind of understand uh, how many people are unhoused in Aurelia. And we know that we have between 20 and 30 individuals who are chronically unhoused, so um, have been homeless for more than uh, 30 days or so. And we have a, a fluctuating population of anywhere up to 200 individuals um, who may be moving through, who may be couch surfing, who may have unstable housing. There is a shelter in Aurelia, we should mention. It has about 50 beds, we're told. We've also been told that it is almost always completely full. So clearly there's this need. Now, when you say those numbers, th- those are not insignificant numbers, but to my ears, they sound surmountable. And I say that because I, I think, you know, one wonders why Aurelia can't build something for that many people to live in or another shelter to help folks? I agree. Uh, it is certainly, there are there are many people both on city council and in partnership with city staff and city council who are working toward some solutions that, that provide housing. Um, there are a number of measures that we are hoping to bring forward. Um, some of us went and toured a managed encampment site in Waterloo earlier this year, and we we are considering that kind of measure. We're going to be bringing forward a measure to have a poverty reduction strategy in Aurelia, and we're also have an opioid task force that's uh, bringing forward a motion to create a drop-in center that would be a one-site access to wraparound services. So, we have some uh, some big plans, and we know that it's all hands on deck, not just federal, provincial, and municipal, but uh, community as well. What does it say to you that, that something as basic as public washrooms has been controversial? I, I understand. I mean, certainly all of the counselors have had emails and phone calls uh, with concern about safety and particularly fire safety and cleanliness uh, of the encampments. And this is a measure to address that. It's unfortunate that it's controversial, but I hope that we can just keep working on educating people, reducing the stigma. I think that is the key component. What kinds of response have you been getting? What kinds of calls and voicemails are people leaving for you on this issue? For the most part, people are contacting me. They're they're sympathetic. They understand. Everyone uh, recognizes the affordability crisis that we are in. But at the same time, people are concerned about safety. Um, 
I did have someone contact me today with a very disturbing suggestion mm-hmm. um, that uh, the city consider exterminating our uh, unhoused population. And, and I know that is an outlier, but it is illustrative of the hate that bubbles under the surface and the misunderstanding. And um, it's hard to talk about. Um, it's but emotional I think for you. It is. I don't think we can let hate fester. We need to bring it out into the open and address it and address the stigma that faces uh, people who are chronically unhoused, who, who are always, without exception, um, have experienced trauma. And um, we, we need to, to combat that stigma. How soon might these services be in place? We're very hopeful that um, I know our staff are amazing and they're going to come back with their report at our very next meeting of council, which is October 16th, with the cost of those measures. And it will be up to council to determine whether we will fund them. And of course, we're very hopeful that council will do so. And if if that uh, that funding is approved, then we can move on it pretty much right away. Janet Lynn, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate yours, Neil. Take care. Bye-bye. Janet Lynn Durnford is a city councillor in Aurelia, Ontario. I'm Paul Havershude, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. And we have a octopus in the... Atlanta. Atlanta view. Yeah. Because of the... In the upper... Yeah. Um, upper left. That's a beautiful view. Um, wow. Wow. I'm glad we got to see a live mm-hmm. one. Mm-hmm. Oh, the flappy... Flappy ears. <laughs> it's so graceful, like the slow motion. There's no mistaking the wonder in those voices. The flappy ears part could be cause for confusion, though. Octopuses aren't really known for their ears, but that feature is exactly what makes this octopus so special. It's called a Dumbo octopus, for obvious reasons, and it is the world's deepest living octopus species, which is the other thing that makes that sighting so exciting. It took place on board a research vessel called the EV Nautilus, which just came ashore. Native Hawaiian intern Jaina Galvez was operating the remote camera that spotted it. We reached Ms. Galvez in Honolulu. Jaina, I-, I watched that video on mute, and I kid you not, my reaction was almost verbatim 
to that of your colleagues as they were taking it all in. You were there as well watching it all, but we don't hear your voice. Why is that? Um, yeah, I was just too stunned to speak. <laughs> um, I was also controlling the camera, so I was so yeah. focused and I wanted to get it right. But yeah, it's always been at the top of my bucket list just from a jumbo octopus. So when I saw it floating into the screen, I just, yeah, went silent and I was freaking out. I couldn't <laughs> believe that I was finally seeing one. Most of us, I think it's safe to say, are just learning that such a thing even exists. Just describe what it looks like to our to our listeners. We got a sense of it there from what your colleagues were saying, but it's quite something to behold. So describe what it looks like. Yeah, um, it does have very similar features to a regular octopus, but they get the name Jumbo Octopus because it looks like a jumbo elephant, you know, and the way they flap their ears, they just glide through the water. Um, it's a way for them to move around. And in the end, you didn't just see one. That would have been exciting, it sounds like, for you. How many? Yeah, um, we saw... Seven total on this cruise, and six of those seven we saw on my watch. So it's pretty incredible. <laughs> Did you get your speech back at some point? Oh, no. Every single time I was like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, there it is again. Like I couldn't believe it. Every single time there was another one. I was like, wow, we're so lucky. Well, why do you think you hit that jackpot this time? You know, I think it just um, goes to show that Papahanaumokuakea um, the Marine National Monument here in Hawaii is just such an abundant place with so much diversity and so much life. Yeah. It was really awesome to see that within the monument. Indigenous practices inform this expedition in a, in a big way. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's an honor as a Native Hawaiian myself to working with a program like Ocean Exploration Trust, where they not only um, bring Indigenous people on board to participate, but they let Indigenous people lead. And I think that is so important for science, especially being on Indigenous Hawaiian land. Um, you know, you can't do science research on Indigenous land without Indigenous knowledge. And it was so awesome to see everyone participate. Um, before we would set the ROVs in the water, we would do olis or chants, um, basically uh, protecting them for their journey. And when they return, thanking them for the journey. Um, Every time that we would do things like sampling, we would make sure that we were doing it in the correct way, um, making sure that, you know, when we are taking a sample from the sacred indigenous place, that um, these really hold significance to us Native Hawaiians, that they are, um, Papanaumokokea is the place of our origin and the place where we believe we return in death. Um, so, yeah, it's really important that um, we know all of these organisms are amakua, our ancestors, so they hold spiritual life to them. So when we're taking them away from their home, it's really important that we do it in the right way. It sounds beautiful. 27 days on this Nautilus, 12 dives. So there had to be some difficult moments, uh, I can imagine. What was the hardest part? Yeah. Um, I think the hardest part was... Probably being away from home and, you know, you're stuck in the middle of the ocean. You haven't <laughs> seen land or at that point we hadn't seen land for almost a month. Um, there's 50 people on the ship. Um, so you did get some privacy, but, you know, there's only so many places you can go. <laughs> Understandable. <laughs> so glad to be back on, on land. Oh, absolutely. But I could do this over and over and over again. There was another part of this trip as well, and that was mapping three shipwrecks from the Battle of Midway. What was that part of the experience like? Yeah, so two very, very, very different experiences. You know, when you see these videos, like the Jumbo Octopus, all the scientists are freaking out. We're like, oh my gosh, but the Battle of Midway, um, there were so many casualties, and we're seeing these shipwrecks. Yeah. Um, parts of it for the first time ever, and it's really heavy, and it's really hard. Um, and we all were kind of silent, and we all had to deal with it in our own ways, and it wasn't easy to see all this destruction and know that 
the past that came with it. And we should say you were you were on board. You mentioned you were you were at the helm of the the video camera. You were mm-hmm. there as an intern. So yeah. <laughs> w- when you when you looked at what the others were doing, what the scientific team was doing, what's your sense of the scientific significance of what you saw out there? Um, yeah, I think it's just really important for us to be doing this work because we just don't know much about the deep ocean. And everything that we film, everything that we see helps inform science. And I think it's also important for us to share these videos with the world because um, we learn why it's important to protect these organisms. You know, while we were down there, we even saw trash like plastic and fishing Mm. nets at these deep depths in the darkness. So it's crazy. Um, We wouldn't think that we're causing much destruction to these habitats, but we are. And so I think it's really important that um, people get to see these and the scientists, you know, get to do the research and just learn more about the deep ocean. It, It surprised you to see that debris. Surprising when we saw it, yes, but also not surprising at mm-hmm. the same time, you know. Yeah, very different reaction to what we heard in that clip off the top of our conversation, yeah. though, I bet. What mm-hmm. did you, what was the reaction then? A lot of sadness. Um, at first, everybody's like, what is that? That looks really weird. And then we zoom in, and it's like, oh, it's a fishing net or it's a piece of plastic. And yeah, there's a heavy weight in the room once we realize that we're the ones who did that, you know. We're so deep in the ocean, and yet we still have an impact. Yeah. The Nautilus, as I understand it, is launching another expedition in, in just a few days. Will you be on mm-hmm. it? What's next for you? Uh, yeah, I will not be on the next one, um, but they do go back out in a couple days. Yeah. Um, yeah, like I said, too, I would love to just keep doing this. So I hope I made a good impression as an intern and I get to keep <laughs> coming back. It sounds like you did. You certainly got that amazing, amazing video, Jaina. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very much. Take care. Yeah, absolutely. Jaina Galvez was a video engineering intern on board the most recent expedition of the EV Nautilus, which is operated by the Ocean Exploration Trust. We reached her in Honolulu. In August of last year, the first contest took place, and one lawn on the island of Gotland, Sweden, was crowned the winner. Guest host Susan Bonner spoke with one of the judges of the lawn contest, Mimi Gibson. Ms. Gibson, can you describe this lawn to us? What does it look like? Oh, it's really brown, it's gold, it's really um, muddy and earthy, and it doesn't really have any green grass on it. So it's quite ugly. Yes, it's been over a year since Gotland held its inaugural Ugliest Lawn Contest. Long enough for a second Ugliest Lawn Contest to have been held at the end of this past August. This year's victor was described as a very ugly and in no way useful lawn, unless you're a sparrow. By which I assume they mean the sparrow can make a nest using the dry grass. Or that sparrows eat dry grass? I don't know much about Swedish expressions or sparrows. I'm sure it's a good joke. Unless it's not a joke. The the contest, incidentally, is itself both a joke and not. Ms. Gibson told Susan how it came into being. We have a really delicate nature, but we're also one of the most touristy spots in Sweden. People love our, our island, and we love them to come, of course. But we had a record-breaking number of visitors and residents last summer post-COVID, 
And we realized we have to do something to get both living in Gotland and visiting Gotland, tourism in Gotland, more sustainable. So together with um, with the tourism business, with the authorities and all the residents, we tried to come up with areas to improve. And we came up with six. But saving water was the most, far most important one. And that's why this competition came in, because we needed something that could you know, start a conversation, but not be too harsh. Maybe you could put a smile on your face, but still have like a really serious core message. So Gotlanders have tried to embrace a new aesthetic, brown and yellow and crunchy instead of boring, cliched old lush and green. And this week they announced that they want the world to join them. The world, including you, if you think your lawn measures up or down. If it's looking especially desiccated and hideous this year, take a photo and post it on Instagram with the hashtag world's ugliest lawn. The winner gets a t-shirt. And the pride that comes with knowing you haven't wasted a drop of water to maintain your yard. So you should enter if your lawn is responsibly maintained and completely dehydrated. And like your lawn, the judge's decision will be cut and dried. On the campaign trail back in 2020, Joe Biden made a pretty ironclad pledge. I can guarantee you, if I'm president, there will be no offshore drilling. And I extend the moratorium. I think it should be basically a permanent moratorium. Well, three years later, the U.S. president has changed his mind and approved three offshore oil and gas leases in the Gulf of Mexico, which has managed to anger people on both sides of the aisle. Republicans and the drill baby drill set are upset that the plan is scaled down compared to previous proposals, and environmentalists say the president should keep his promise not to allow any more offshore drilling. Beth Lowell is the vice president of the environmental advocacy group Oceana. We reached her in Washington, D.C. Beth, how do you square the Joe Biden you heard in that clip with the one who announced these leases today? You know, we're really disappointed. It really is locking us into um, a decision that could lead to oil spills, impacts to communities, and continues to exacerbate the climate crisis. Secretary of the Interior Deb Haaland says this plan represents, quote, the smallest number of oil and gas lease sales in history, end quote. And she says this will support the offshore wind industry, protect against the potential for environmental damage in coastal communities. So is this not the kind of compromise that is necessary right now? You know, we were really um, pleased when President Biden issued that campaign promise back in 2000. Um, and really think that any lease sale too, man- too many. It, it puts the oceans at risk. We know that when oil drill happens, there are spills. They can be huge spills like the BP Deepwater Horizon disaster um, that dumped about 100 million pounds of oiled waste into uh, the oceans, or they can even be small spills like pipeline leaks um, or just smaller platform accidents. All of those impact the oceans. All of those impact communities that rely upon a healthy ocean Mm -hmm. and impact tourism, fishing, and other industries. And so we really think the right decision was to 
um, shift away from fossil fuel development and and transition to clean energy, including offshore wind. The oceans can be part of the climate solution and uh, continuing to lease areas for offshore drilling is not the way to do that. Do you think it was feasible, though, to to get that at this point, given the state of of politics in your country at the moment, government shutdown looming, divisive issue that this is, is this not at least a small win? It's not exactly what you wanted, but can it not help and build towards what you want in the long run? You know, at the end of the day, this was President Biden's decision. Um, We do have a divided Congress, but Congress doesn't make the decisions Mm -hmm. of the five-year plan. This was within his administration's ability to make a decision for the long-term health of our country by supporting a transition to clean energy and, you know, turning um, the page away from offshore drilling um, and putting our oceans first and communities first, of course. Congress did, though, if I'm not mistaken, make wind power development contingent on approving any new oil leases. So were Biden's hands not tied here in that sense? Well, you know, the provisions of the Inflation Reduction Act that coupled offshore wind and oil and gas leasing was a horrendous provision. Um, And looking at the mandated lease sales in that Inflation Reduction Act allowed the the Biden administration to continue with offshore oil, um, offshore wind leasing, excuse me, through 2024, which allows them to reach their goal of 30 gigawatts of offshore wind development by 2030. Then I think the real solution was to pivot to um, overturning that provision. Uh, Congress put it in last year, but working with this administration, really prioritizing um, with, you know, the next Congress that comes in to reverse those provisions rather than locking us into 10 years of bad policy um, and just accepting that that uh, oil and gas and offshore wind provision um, has to be what we deal with forever. Republicans and oil industry representatives, as you as you well know, slam this plan as well for very different reasons. They say it's too restrictive and also argue it's too soon for the United States to be entirely free of offshore drilling. Do you think the country is ready for a complete shift to renewable energy at this moment? Well, I think what's important to note is if you end offshore oil uh, and gas leasing, it does not end offshore drilling. The oil and gas industry currently has a stockpile of millions of acres of leases on public lands and waters that they're not using. There are more than 2,000 leases for offshore drilling that totals more than 11 million acres of ocean. Um, and there, 75% of those leases they're not even using right now. So they have a lot of potential to develop offshore oil and gas reserves in our oceans without needing to buy new leases. New leases kind of lock us into years long of additional development. So a lease sold today does not get drilled tomorrow. They're sitting on this stockpile of leases. They should drill the leases that they have rather than keep acquiring more and more of our public waters for offshore drilling. So why do you think, you know, given the promise we played at the very beginning of this interview, why do you think the Biden administration made this move now? You know, I think they felt their hands were tied from the Inflation Reduction Act, but we don't agree with that. We think the better path forward was to really um, fight back on that and try to get it reversed, Mm -hmm. knowing that the oil and gas industry already has millions of acres um, on tap, ready to develop. This does not slow oil and gas development, and um, it really just locks us into a policy that's opposite of what we should be doing for the climate change crisis and our oceans. 
So given that lock, what's your next step now? So we're going to continue to um, push for the um, non-restrictive Offshore Wind Act, the NOW Act, which would decouple offshore wind um, and offshore oil and gas leasing. And we're calling on Congress. There's a 60-day congressional review period of the five-year plan. We're calling on Congress to weigh in with the administration to say that this is not the five-year plan they wanted, and we want to see the final plan have no new leases. Thanks for this, Beth. Of course. Happy to talk with you. Beth Lowell is the vice president of the environmental advocacy group Oceana. She's in Washington, D.C. A majestic red oak that was toppled when post-tropical storm Fiona blew through the Maritimes last year is being resurrected, not as a tree, but as a beautiful hand-carved chair. The piece of furniture is being made by Nova Scotia-born designer Jonathan Otter. It will be auctioned off to help support people who lost their homes in the storm. We reached Jonathan Otter in Cork, Ireland. Jonathan, your chair is called Solace, so that gives us a hint of the, the emotion you wanted to convey with it, but describe it for our listeners. It's very sculptural in, in nature. The arms are, are carved. The inspiration really is uh, a wave that's been, been whipped up by the wind, uh, such as you'd find in the Northumberland Strait. The tumultuousness, the tempestuousness of, of what a hurricane can do, you know, natural forces are extremely powerful. The idea of solace comes in that inside the chair, I wanted the upholstery to surround the, the sitter. I wanted the arms to be deep so they feel protected in there. Uh, and that's really what the theme of, of the whole Made from Fiona uh, project is about, is, is that we can face these wild events, but if we know that people care about us, there's going to be support, then it takes the sting away from it. That's the, that's the fundraiser and the auction. We'll talk a bit more about yeah. that in a, in a moment, too. When did you, though, get your hands first on this, this red oak? How long did it take you to finish this project? We started sourcing it last January, it was probably ready in May. I got at it in July in my workshop. Um, um, you know, there was a lot of preliminaries like designing and uh, measured drawings, scale drawings, and then modeling before I got to actually make the chair in full scale. So it's it's been a, a nine-month project for me, probably 300 hours, and others that have helped me. Uh, hundreds more, yeah, a long, long project. So, what was it like to finally take a seat in it yourself? Are you are you pleased with it? Is it hard to I let am, it go? Actually. Yeah, you are. <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah, I am pleased, and I actually got my mom and dad to sit in it as well. There, yeah. they gave it the thumbs up. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's high praise. Yeah. It's hard to get yeah. parental <laughs> recognition most of the time. Um, is it hard to let it go? Um, not so much. Mm-hmm. It's. Um, I can make another one, I suppose, but um, the um, it was a, a very sweet project for me. It was it was a very wonderful thing to be able to do. Um, it's not so hard to let it go because I hope that it uh, goes to a good home mm-hmm. and uh, it's treasured as a kind of a unique piece. The uh, one thing I should mention, Neil, is yeah. that the um, 
the GPS coordinates of where the tree fell are hand carved into the back crest. Oh. So it's it's got quite a, a lovely story behind. That's that's so many lovely details um, that you're mm. that you're telling us about. It's clearly personal for you as well. We've mentioned that that you you live in Ireland now, but clearly you have a connection to to what happened. And you mentioned your parents. So if you can share with our listeners why this you connected with what happened so deeply. Yeah, of course. Uh, well, I, I grew up in Nova Scotia. Nova Scotia is my home. Um, I've been in Ireland now for six years. Um, um, we moved here for family reasons. My wife is from Ireland. So, you know, the majority of my life I spent in Nova Scotia, and, and I still feel it's my home. Um, and I grew up uh, there uh, in that forest that is now flattened because of Fiona. So, you know, when I got the phone call, would I like to be interested uh, in, in participating? Uh, it was something I couldn't possibly refuse. Uh, it was extremely personal for me. You're probably hearing from, from friends and other family back home. What kinds of things are they telling you now, just over a year since Fiona hit? Yeah, most of it is is still kind of an ongoing situation. A lot of people are, are still in limbo. Um, and maybe it's, it comes as a surprise for those of us who haven't been touched by an extreme weather event, that it, it doesn't just go away because it falls off the news. It takes months and years to, to recover. And, uh, you know, my parents' woodlot is a, is a, a case in point. Um, I'm, I don't believe the harvester is in there yet. Now, Fiona knocked it flat all in one direction, so it's it will be easy enough to harvest once they can get to it. But, of course, everybody's forest is flat. And the longer these trees are down, then, you know, any marketable uh, timber begins to deteriorate. So um, this was a forest, you know, in 1982, my parents implemented a forestry plan. And um, uh, there was 40 years of work went into it. There was fire roads and fire ponds and harvesting and thinning and silviculture and all of these things. And in 12 hours, Fiona just uh, flattened it. My brother had a woodlot. He lost his as well. So it's ongoing, and, and it will take a long time to recover from a loss uh, that large. Are they doing okay emotionally, though, now at least, a little bit better? Or is it is that Yeah, ongoing? I think so. Yeah, I think, you no, know, Nova Scotians are tough. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hear that. They yeah. are very tough. Um, I, I didn't see a tremendous amount of emotion, you, you know, frustration, yes, and um, possibly some anxiety at uh, trying to get uh, it cleaned up and and salvage somehow, but um, there was probably emotion. I just didn't see it. We mentioned the auction. Where specifically will the money raised go? Who will it help? We tried to look for a um, charity that was still dealing with the aftermath of, of Hurricane Fiona. Um, and one of the ones that is most involved uh, still is um, United Way Halifax. Um, and they're, they're particularly... Uh, focused on helping those who are most vulnerable, um, which is uh, a wonderful thing. So it'll be going, uh, whatever funds are raised will be going to them to help to help people. Jonathan, thank you. My pleasure. We reached Jonathan Otter in Cork, Ireland.
Neil, can you believe it? We have just wrapped up another week and the first month of this new season of As It Happens. I can't believe it. How is September almost over? I have no idea. But I do know that I am heading to Dollarama on my way home tonight to buy some Halloween candy. Every October, Chris, mm-hmm. we said no spooky voice generator this year. I think we've you've tapped out. You've maxed out. Plus, we should focus on what's even better than candy. Our exciting new bonus podcast. Great. Please, um, oh boy. please go ahead. Please. Sorry. The, the this is it. Now. This is the entire podcast. No, it's not. <laughs> we have a I special. Got it. I got the button. We have a special treat for you to mark the end of this first month of our new season. You're probably familiar with our summer show, As It Happened, which features some of the most memorable moments from our decades-deep archive. Now we're bringing you a special podcast-only monthly edition of As It Happened, where we will review some of our favorite conversations from the month that was and dust off some classics from the archives as well. You can find the very first episode, As It Happened, the September edition, in our podcast feed tomorrow. You're telling me I can eat my Dollarama candy corn while listening to a special Saturday edition of the As It Happens podcast? Candy corn? Yeah, candy corn. Oh, my. Well, we've never discussed this, and maybe we shouldn't. Right. Mm -hmm. Here's a taste of what you will hear in this month's episode. From 1986, this is former host Dennis Trudeau talking to professional ice cream taste tester. What a life. John Harrison. Mr. Harrison, tell us, how do we do it properly? How do we taste ice cream properly? cheesecake <laughs> and uh, chocolate almond fudge cookies and cream and uh, so forth so but when we taste ice cream uh, Dennis what we're looking for are uh, three areas uh, number one of course we always eat with our eyes initially we all do that and so after we've uh, eaten the products with our eyes then we go into the taste buds of which I do every day which taste buds in your mouth do we use And how much should you take on the spoon, or do you put it on a cone or a little wooden thing? Well, actually, I use a gold-plated spoon, oh. so it wouldn't bring out any off flavors from plastic or wood and so forth. And I'll put a small amount of vanilla ice cream on my tongue and let it melt, and it'll cover the taste buds. And then I'll bring that aroma, because I'm savoring at this point those delicate flavors, the top notes, the dairy notes. The body and texture should be a smooth, creamy product with none of the following type defects, such as icy and cold, coarse, gummy, soggy, weak. I don't know if you'll believe this or not, (laughs) or your listeners, but uh, my favorite flavor is vanilla. I can understand that. Can't beat vanilla. What do you do to look after your taste buds, the ones you've insured for a quarter of a million? Well, uh, the word is moderation. (laughs) In what? I don't don't go out and uh, run rampant with scampi and... uh, eat anything, but I just don't overdo anything. So that your taste buds stay in shape. Exactly. And of course, I I taste early in the morning, so I don't uh, uh, eat breakfast. Uh, Generally, I'll just have a uh, lukewarm uh, cup of tea. Ice cream for breakfast. Every kid in the world must want your job. (laughs) 
I tell you, Dennis, I'm a kid at heart. I love ice cream, always have, and uh, I think you're right. I've got one of the most enviable uh, jobs in the world. Professional ice cream taste tester John Harrison speaking with Dennis Trudeau in 1986. You can hear that interview and more in our first special podcast-only monthly edition of As It Happened. You can find that in your regular podcast feed tomorrow. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.